It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 102. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. How's it going, Gary? Oh, uh, pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's been an interesting weekend. I mean, Mm -hmm. like every other probably podcast and newsletter and who knows what, um, it would be wrong of us not to at least acknowledge the events of the last week or so um, Mm -hmm. and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not something that we're going to spend a lot of time on by any stretch. There's plenty of other better venues for those kinds of discussions to happen. However, um, there were a couple of interesting, I don't even know what to call them, just a couple of interesting topics that um, are somewhat related uh, and actually older than we might think. Uh, There's an article on CNET. Uh, Let's see, it talks about basically the fact that uh, technology uses several terms that, if you really think about it, are potentially offensive. And the Hmm. one that uh, uh, I was having a discussion with someone earlier today, and I mentioned that um, on one of my other lists, not an Ask Leo list, but on another list, someone uh, basically crossed a line and I ended up putting them on a blacklist. And Hmm. somebody pointed out that that's a potentially offensive term, which I hadn't really thought about. And in fact, there are many, many terms like that that I think a lot of people take for granted uh, without even thinking about, you know, maybe their origins or maybe even, um, uh, you know, how how others might might feel about that. I, uh, in this particular case, uh, you know, I have come up with an alternative term uh, that I'm hoping is much more neutral. Uh, Oh, I can guess what it is. Is it one letter difference? No. no. Okay. Well, you, you tell me what your alternative term is, and then I'll tell you mine. I was going to say a blocked users list. Mine was close. I was just going to say <laughs> block list. I mean, it's, okay. If somebody asked me, you know, what a blacklist was in terms of email servers and such, I would have said, "Well, you could think of it as a block list." Oh, okay. I get it now. You know, right. <laughs> and it's like, well, why not the more obvious term that actually describes right. Right. What it, it is. is. It is kind of interesting that occasionally the alternate alternative terms are a bit more descriptive, at least to the lay people, right? Yeah. People that aren't are, are steeped in technology. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know, blacklists and whitelists uh, are not something new to people, right? We've been talking about this in the spam sure. arena forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other term, and this came up in in a CNET article. Uh, in that CNN article I mentioned, and of course, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Uh, there have been terms related to hard disk drives, specifically IDE style drives used in early PCs, where one drive was considered the master and ah. other drives were considered slaves. In other words, huh. when information was being passed to and from the CPU, it went to the master first and it, it dealt with delegating it to um, either doing the hmm. work itself or delegating it to the so-called slave drives. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a hierarchy is, is all it's really trying to, uh, to describe. But that's a clear case where, yep, I, could, I totally get it. It, that just doesn't. And to be fair, that's a that's something that somebody raised, I think, decades ago. Right. In passing. It's an old. It's not it's not used that often. I don't hear it that often anymore. It's true. Uh, you don't yeah. hear it that often anymore, mostly because SATA drives, which we're all using now anyway, um, or SS, the SSD interface, the new, what is it, M.2, um, those interfaces don't have the concept anymore, but the old IDE drives did, and there was definitely, you'd fire it up in your BIOS, and you had to, to say, you know, is this drive going to be a master drive or a slave drive, and so forth. Um, mm. and, and honestly, I don't, there, there are some alternative terminologies. But I think the bigger issue here is just that there are a lot of words that a lot of people take for granted, especially in technology, where, you know, we never really thought about the fact that it might have other meetings or mm-hmm. you know, other connotations that other people might find, um, if not truly offensive, then at least uncomfortable. And these are terms of convenience anyway, just short terms that can describe a larger concepts. So it really doesn't affect anything uh, coming up with a better term uh, today. 
Right, right. And the issue with, with better terms is sometimes the terms, they're so ingrained that they often feel like the only possible term. And of course, that's just not, not necessarily true. Um, right. But it's also one of those things where when we do find an alternative, like block list instead of blacklist, um, although you now will have to come up with a, uh, the opposite for a block list, right? Because whitelist is also in, you know, in the used allowed in list or something like that, right? Yeah. But you, Either way, the the alternatives are going to feel uncomfortable for a while um, until they're not, right? Until everybody's just using them and uh, language changes, language evolves, and this seems to be um, another inflection point in language where, you know, it's probably worth thinking about this kind of stuff. Well, come to think of it, the last time I looked uh, at my server and had to do some things with a blacklist, whitelist type of situation, the actual commands are block and allow you know, to add to one list or the other. Right, right. So going to block list, allow list seems like a natural because that's actually, you know, words being already used right. for those functions on the server. So right. hmm, interesting. Yeah, no, I couldn't, if you had asked me, you know, uh, like what terms, I, I wouldn't have uh, been able to come up with any. And of course, obviously now it's now it's obvious that those two terms are... Uh, are, are something that, yeah, probably just need to be updated. Uh, so what do you think? Are we going to see like in our server software and like cPanel or WHM web host management uh, updates to those anytime it, soon? It would, not, it would not surprise me. Yeah. Um, if, surprise well, me to be honest, here's, here's how I think how ingrained a lot of these terms are. They may have already changed. But because, <laughs> yeah, because we've been doing this for so long, and have used these terms for so many years that uh, we don't even notice them and we don't even notice that they may have been replaced with an alternative. Mm-hmm. So I have to go fire up cPanel and, and see what uh, what the firewall settings are all about. Or yeah, the latest kind of alpha version, you know, early, early thing. You know, because there's usually several versions. There's like the latest version that's been dropped that right. nobody's using unless you're actually testing servers. And then there's the latest release, which still nobody is using. And then there's the stable, what are they called? The stable release. Right. And that's the one that the uh, that everybody's pretty sure is pretty good. And that's like your, your host would actually implement on all their servers. Right. Um, and that could be sometimes a year or more. Oh, multiple years old. Yeah. And it really does boil down to, uh, you know, is it still um, in its serviceable life? Is it still getting updates? And those are the kind of updates that could, that can and often do things like, you know, change UI, change, change terminology and so forth. It's really only when something has fallen out of support completely that, um, you know, these things are pretty much cast in stone for the duration of that particular server's right. life. Right. So. Huh. Yeah, so I was I was also looking for kind of a, you know I'm always looking for tech angles you know for the whole pandemic thing what are the tech angles on on the pandemic and with the uh, the protests and the BLM movement uh, the the only tech angle I could see is I, I saw one mentioned somewhere over a lot of the legislation that's being produced in many states and cities about uh, for uh, police reforms um, you know talks of the cameras that they wear. And uh, I saw somewhere where, you know, a lot of times now they're being told, okay, the new rule is cameras are always on or cameras are always on if you draw your gun or cameras are always on when you start, you know, beginning of an incident, whatever it is, whatever the change is. And I saw in a couple of places mention of battery life. Oh, if they're always on or they're always on when uh, an officer is, you know, an active, uh, you know, use, you know, on the streets or in their car or whatever, then could the battery last that long? So I was curious, it's like, how long do these camera batteries last? So I went looking for somebody covering that and I couldn't find anything recent, but but I found something from 2014 from popular mechanics going into, uh, I guess they they did this in response to to Ferguson back then. Um, You know, how, how long do these batteries last? And I was surprised to find that in 2014, it was either 12 or 14 hours of recording time which I would shock me. If you told me 12 or 14 hours today, I'd be like, okay, but 12 or 14 hours back then. Right. It's like, okay, so now they should be at least that, if not more. Right. Um, I know people have sometimes have battery operated doorbell cameras that are even longer than that. Right. 
Um, but they're not always recording. That's I think true. That's that a, that might a be one yeah. of the issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I think they are kind of like I think the idea is they're not always saving. You know, because some of those cameras will give you time like from before the doorbell was rung or something like that, you know. So they're always kind of taking the input and discarding it. Mm -hmm. And now I know on my phone, for instance, if I were to go uh, on an iPhone and use the, you know, I'm using the live photos view, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where it could take a live photo. When you click the button, you get a video that includes one and a half seconds before and one and a half seconds after when you clicked, which makes it really handy to take pictures of lightning because you just point it at the sky <laughs> and you wait. And as soon as you see lightning, you click and then it's capturing all those frames, including one and a half seconds before, which means it had been, it's recording the entire time the camera is on. Now right. that's not, that's still not 14 hours. I'm not, you know, I don't have the camera app on, you know, with the screen showing what the camera is showing for 14 hours straight. But anyway, the, I think my point is, is that it seems like, um, at least in this one place where I saw there was an argument for, oh, that could have, you know, be impossible to have the cameras on all the time because of battery life, that it seems like that's not true. Yeah, I tend um, to, especially with the kind of battery life that, um, <laughs> heck, that I'm getting in my new phone right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's lasting a day and a half, two days if I don't charge it. Uh, and that's with normal use. When you take a look at um, uh, body cams, mm-hmm. those are single purpose devices. Yeah, no LCD display, right? And no display. That's what I was going to point out is that the biggest drain on most of our phones these days isn't actually what it's doing necessarily, but it's the display that just just sucks battery because that's what it takes a lot to put out light. Um, Of course, I mean, that varies based on what the app is doing specifically, but I could certainly see um, uh, a video recording app like I said, dedicated purpose. Um, so I don't know that it needs to be 4K video. I don't know what these things run generally. I think they actually, well, according to that older article, I don't know if mm-hmm. it's changed, they, they record in standard definition simply because the file size of HD gets to be pretty big. Sure. Now, I don't, that may have changed now. I mean, you know, it's cheaper to get uh, memory. Right. And it's also, there are also better compression algorithms that are, mm-hmm. you know, can be publicly used uh, or easily licensed. So it may be that they're maybe 720, maybe maybe not 1080 yet, or maybe they are 1080, but not 4K yet. You know, right. they probably move along. Um, I was also thinking in terms of like, okay, from a kind of tech design standpoint, um, thinking in terms of, you know, software, which I design, of course, all the time when I'm doing things. Um, I think the ideal system if I was developing one, would simply be one that did not have an on or off button. Uh, you know, because the idea is, well, when when should these cameras be on and when should they be off? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I thought about it and I thought, well, the obvious solution, if I was like Apple and I was designing a police, you know, body cam, mm-hmm. uh, would be to have no buttons <laughs> at all. It is always on. It is always recording. It records up to the maximum amount of time in loops and, you know, but the idea being that you would, you know, pull the video off of it. Right. Uh, so you would always have it, but there would never be a decision where you'd have to sit and think, do I have it on in this situation or do I have it off? Right. It's always on. And that would solve a lot of problems for police officers in trying to like, you know, decide when it goes on and when it goes off because there's no decision to make. Now there's one problem with that. There is a situation where you may not want to have the camera on. But, and that is uh, in the restroom, um, which of course, if you're working for eight hours or 12 hours or 14 hours, you will visit the restroom. We'll visit the once. restroom. Yes. And I was thinking about this and I thought, well, tough. <laughs> like, you know, uh, when thinking about it and thinking about uh, other implications that being able to turn on or off a body cam have, um, maybe it's just the kind of thing like, you know, nobody wants to see that and nobody has to see that. It's not something, you know, that has, just because it's recorded doesn't mean it has to be seen. So maybe that's just one of those things like, you know, uh, you just have to deal with. Uh, It's funny because when you, when you said that um, the, the cops were making decisions about when to turn cameras off and on and so forth. um, Honestly, until recently, I was under the impression that the cameras were always on. Oh. uh, Which uh, it surprises me. 
Um, and I agree. I, I love your design, <laughs> with, the yeah. except, with the exception, maybe, of going to the bathroom. I think I'd want a solution for that. Uh, the, you know, to go back to what I was saying about it being a single-purpose device, I mean, it also, when you take a look at, so I don't know if the, the ones I see on television, uh, as in the cop shows, are relatively accurate depictions of these devices or not. Hmm. Um, my guess is they're close. And they're fairly, I want to say they're a little on the bulky side, bulkier than I was expecting, which means that I think there's a lot of room in there for the dedicated circuitry, which doesn't have to be very big. Cameras themselves are tiny. Everything else can be battery. So Mm -hmm. I just don't see why it shouldn't last 24 hours. Uh, you know, in continuous recording without an on and off switch. The other thing that I was thinking of, though, was that, okay, let's say the battery capacity isn't up to snuff for some reason. I just have this visions of uh, cops having to tether themselves when they get back in the car to a charging cable that then, um, as soon as they get out of the car, has a quick release. Well, it's bank, It's magnetic. Right. That would yeah, really yeah, do it. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, like Max have and so forth. Yes, I agree. Or used to have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're not yeah. Doing, that's right. They're not doing that anymore. Yeah. USB-C now is standard. Um, but the point, point being though, that there are a number of solutions that would make it very possible for the cameras to be always on uh, without, uh, without too much. Uh, right. And there's some pres- technical issue. Right. Think- and there's precedence for professions having cameras always on. Um, I, I'm curious to know if uh, operating rooms and doctors, I don't think they, they have, I mean, certainly they could implement that for, you know, in terms of malpractice suits and things like that. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's other, I know for years now, there's a website where you can hire freelancers uh, called Upwork. And I don't, is it Upwork or maybe it's one of the other competitors where one of the things you can do is you could hire somebody to do something like, say, draw an illustration for you. And one of the things you have access to is the screen capture of them using their computer the entire time that they were creating their thing. And this is a fantastic thing because uh, if you ask somebody, oh, I want a drawing of a cartoon mouse. Right. And they, here it is. It's like, oh, did they steal that or did they actually draw that from scratch? And, uh, you know, having a, a recording and seeing them open Adobe Illustrator and then draw all the vector lines and all that is, is you know, is the whole idea um, behind being, you know, getting that. So it's, it's great, too, if you yourself then get accused of copyright yeah. infringement, you then have this proof that, uh, no, no, this was created for me. Right. Um, and as, a, as an aside, those kind of videos where somebody's, you know, doing artwork, uh, you know, in, I don't want to say in real time, but they're doing artwork on camera like that. When you f- speed them up, they're fascinating to watch. <laughs> they, just, they really are. Right. Oh, and I, hey, I just came up with a solution for the restroom issue. Okay. Just, just cover the camera. So I thought about that. Yeah. Um, if the camera's easy to cover, that opens it up to abuse in other yeah, situations. Yeah, it's easy to cover, but it's, it has to be intentional and ongoing. In other words, in order to cover it up, you have to intentionally do something and continue to do it. Put your hand over it. Oh, I see you know, what you mean. As soon as you it, let the camera go, it opens up again. It opens up again. Now, in yeah. your, if you're in a situation where you're actually doing something on the street, whatever, right. probably not going to have time to do that. And if you are intentionally doing that, then that is like, that's, that's clear. just that's a sign. Yeah. clear violation of, yeah. of, of the rules. Yeah. Um, and, and just like for that, 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 you could be. Yeah. Rather than covering up the lens, actually what it would just be is a button that turns off both the camera and the microphone. Because the microphone oh, yeah, is that, the other yeah, part you, of it. That's the other thing. You hold the button in, yeah. You don't, you don't want to listen to somebody in the restroom. Well, yeah, but you, again, you don't have to. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like nobody's going to go and say, well, there was an incident. Rewind that to three hours earlier when he was in the restroom. You know, you don't need to, to do that. Um, I would almost say, you know, the audio stays on at all times, you know. I don't know it's because just, I, it's just, there's a lot of, remember, I want to say remember, that there's a lot of control and psychology behind this as well, right? It's not just technology. Officers have to be willing to do this, which means, of course, they have to be, they're, their police unions typically have to be willing to agree to a contract that says they'll use it. And little things like that, like privacy in the restroom for some definition of privacy, um, I would, I would argue would probably end up including both audio and video. Yeah. I'd like to see it not include audio. I mean, again, nobody has to hear anything that happened during that time. I know. Um, But, but if something did come up, if to, 
crooked cops wanted to talk in the restroom about something that was not, right. uh, uh, you know, strictly uh, allowed, then you, you would have a recording of that. Right. I mean, there's nothing you could do, whether or not you do, you say, hey, the rule is you go to the bathroom, you cover the camera. Um, whether or not you say that's a rule or not, it's part of there being a camera. The existence of a camera means you can cover it up with something. So you can't avoid that design flaw in cameras. Right. Um, so might as well go and say, okay, well, we'll go with that. You can't, you can't cover up your camera unless you're in the restroom and then audio still plays on and yeah, hey, we did an episode uh, a few weeks ago about you know what the Facebook moderators had to put up with. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, and so the thing is, it's like uh, you know that's not you know this is nothing. If if somebody at a uh, you know the the uh, police uh, you know um, oh what's internal affairs right you know it, it has to skip over a portion where you know the officer says using restroom and then covers the camera up. And you don't suspect that there's any issue there. You can just skip ahead till the camera appears, right? Mute it. Camera appears again. Okay, they're done. Uh, but if you suspect something went on, anyway, you get the idea. Yep. Yep. So uh, the the battery thing also reminded me that um, we keep hearing rumors on the various um, electric vehicle and Tesla forums that uh, they're working on what they're calling a million mile battery which I find uh, quite fascinating, actually. Mm. Um, it's the, the, the thing that is conceptually holding people back in a lot of cases from embracing electric vehicles is the concept of range, uh, range anxiety. It's a real thing. And uh, the, the thought that you can go for uh, much more, like right now, the range of like my car is a little over 300 miles before I need to charge up a million miles does not does not mean I could drive for a million miles without a recharge. It means that the battery will last through a million miles of driving and all the recharges that are involved, which is way more than uh, the average person actually uses their car in the car's lifespan. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, we you know we're we're now regularly seeing people cross a hundred thousand miles is pretty easy these days in almost all vehicles, and the ones that end up making news are the um, the cabs or the old Toyotas or the whatevers that are in the three, four, maybe even five hundred thousand mile uh, ranges. Right. But um, you know the concept of the battery no longer being something to be concerned about for the life of the car. Um, is a pretty big deal. And I've, I've said for a long time that one of the, the truly enabling technologies that will change the planet is battery technology. Mm-hmm. Once we can store a bunch more of electricity than we do today, uh, two things will happen. One is, uh, you know, we'll chargers, charge our phones once a week. We'll drive across the country on a single charge, you know, those kinds of things. Um, that that's the upside. The downside, of course, is that our expectations will go up as they have with each increase in technology and we'll start expecting more out of our batteries. But uh, that will just be in the guise of enabling things then that we wouldn't even consider today. So uh-huh. I just I just like the idea of better batteries and I hope this whole million mile battery thing that uh, Tesla is rumored to be working on um, is a real thing and really happens. Yep, Tesla does like to set those huge like goals, you know, not a 200,000 mile battery. We're going to do a million mile battery, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a good way to operate. You know? Speaking of huge goals, thanks for the segue. Yes. Um, so I stumbled across an article on Mac rumors of all places uh, earlier, actually just this afternoon. Apple uh, has hit $1.5 trillion in yeah. market, market capitalization. Now, for a lot of people, um, I, I do want to take a moment to clarify just what that means, because I think a lot of people take this whole $1.5 trillion out of context. It does not mean that Apple has $1.5 trillion in the bank. It does not mean that um, Apple even owns $1.5 trillion of anything. Uh, it means that when you take the shares that are actually owned by, well, real people, I've got a few shares in Apple. Um, Gary, I assume you have a share or two I, in Apple. I don't think you can have a, a retirement account 
today that's diversified and not as and you not said have, 1.5 trillion Apple dollars yep. i don't know i don't know how you it would probably be malpractice on the part of the uh, retirement account i think to, the to only, not own apple the only way to do it actually would be to not use any of any mutual funds whatsoever right uh, or uh, you know, and just invest directly in all stocks except Apple. It'd be really yeah. difficult to do. Anyway, the point being, though, that you know, the the share or two that I own, and the share or two that Gary owns, and the share or two that everybody else on the planet owns—real people, real retirement accounts—it's what they own that when you add up the value of all the shares of all the stock that real people own in Apple. That adds up to 1.5 trillion. Now, it's not that Apple doesn't have a lot of cash in the bank. I'm sure they do. It's not that they don't own a lot of stuff. I'm sure they do. It's just they don't have 1.5 trillion dollars. Right. Which is, I'm not sure. Even, are there even? Yeah, there must be 1.5 trillion dollars somewhere. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. If, in, in printed bills, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, no, certainly bigger than uh, a lot or ha more than half the countries in the world. Um, but then again, uh, there are quite, I don't know how many, how many people does Apple have employed now? 30,000? I don't know. Maybe I'm way off on that. I'm not even so, sure. you know, a lot of people get a, a lot of that money is a lot of that 1.5 trillion is money that is flowing in and out through Apple, a lot of it through paychecks and then reinvestment. Mm -hmm. You know, people buy things, buy right. iPhones, right. money goes in, employees get paid with paychecks, money goes out, contractors get paid and their employees get paid, you know, it's just money. It's, it's a money is not a, um, I always find it interesting to think of money, not as a solid, but as a liquid, it's always flowing. It flows. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, owning say a hundred shares of Apple, whatever the share price is, I don't even know what the share price is today. It's like um, 350 or something. Okay. So say you yeah. own a hundred shares at 350. So you've got, you know, 35 grand in um, Apple stock. You don't have 35 grand of money. Right. You have a piece of paper, uh, perhaps not even that, uh, that is everybody kind of agrees is worth $35,000. And it's not until you actually sell it and no longer own the stock that you actually get the money. So it's, it's so complicated and so weird, but nonetheless, uh, you know, news and, and it's actually kind of an interesting thing that yes, a company theoretically is worth or has a market cap of $1.5 trillion. Put, put on my best uh, Dr. Right. Evil uh, laugh. <laughs> with the so speaking, speaking yes. of Apple. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, uh, a, a renewed, refreshed rumor this week um, is about Apple's future with processors. Yeah, Apple's Macs have gone through quite a few processor changes over the years, uh, and uh, it, rumors point to them doing it again. Um, for a while now, the last 20 years or so, they've been using Intel processors, uh, and there have been strong rumors that Apple's going to switch to ARM processors for for Macs. Now, ARM processors are already used in iPhones uh, and iPads and Apple TVs, for that matter. Um, so Apple's already using a lot more ARM processors than they are Intel processors, you know, company-wide. Mm -hmm. But the idea of moving Macs into ARM processors, which really started out as a mobile processor platform, uh, because a, a lot of emphasis on energy savings, uh, but has actually become quite powerful um, over the years, I mean, notably, you know, the Apple TV, which isn't the latest model is a couple generations behind in ARM processors. You know, you could download apps for that that are 3D games that, you know, are really good. I mean, a lot of polygons on the screen and there's no lag and it's beautiful and all that. And of course, on the iPad, you know, looking at the iPhone, iPhone's got a small screen. So you say, okay, it's got a small screen that's easy to render graphics. But iPads have big screens with a lot of pixels. And there are a lot of uh, 3D games that look just as good as something you may play on a console or on a PC um, that uh, uh, they're all running with ARM processors. So the rumor is that Apple it wants to switch their Macs to ARM processors. The reason they would want to do that to get away from Intel is, uh, well, first they get away from Intel, so they have more control. They're, they make their own ARM processors. ARM processors are a whole thing 
and Apple makes their own, right? They don't own ARM processors. They, they're not the creators of ARM processors, but they do have licenses that allow them to build their own. And like the one, say the A13 ARM processor that is in an iPhone, that's an Apple-built processor. So if Apple switches their Macs to ARM processors, they basically have one less dependency uh, matter of fact, a really big one, the CPU itself. Right. Um, and over the years, Apple has consistently run into trouble with Intel, where Intel says, okay, our next generation is this, and um, it, we hope to have it out next year. And Apple says, great, we're going to have some new iMacs and some new MacBooks that'll use that. And then Intel says, oh, delays, oh, six months, oh, this, you know. And then people go and say, why aren't there new iMacs? There hasn't been a new iMac for a year and a half. There hasn't been a new MacBook for more than a year. And you know, Apple never goes and says, well, this is why. But the experts, you know, who comment on forums say, well, that's because Apple's not going to come out with a new one because there's no new processor from Intel. It would have the same processor that last year's model had. But in six months, maybe we'll have this new processor from Intel, and then Apple will come out with a new MacBook. And sure enough, that's what happens. Apple doesn't have to wait for Intel anymore if they switch to their own processors. They can actually go and say, hey, we're going to have a, Know, new processor out next June, and when that new processor comes out, there'll be new MacBooks. Now, the thing about switching to ARM processors, uh, there's two issues with it. First, that you know, apps, software that run on Intel processors wouldn't necessarily run on ARM processors without some changes. This is what happened when Apple went from their previous architecture, PowerPC chips, to Intel processors. You mm -hmm. had apps that ran on PowerPC chips, and the only way they could run on Intel processors was either by the developer updating them, saying, here's a new version, and this one runs on Intel, or through an emulator that was built into uh, versions of uh, OS X for years um, to emulate and run that old software. Now, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that basically the same thing with the same results would have to happen here. It's not necessarily the same. It, it is and it isn't. Uh, it's a long time since then. Things have gotten a lot faster, a lot more capable, and it's not necessarily going to work out the same. It is kind of true that you know if you build an app and you built it specifically to run on an Intel processor on a Mac, that you couldn't just take that executable file and run it on an ARM processor for the Mac unless there was emulation. Right. But Apple, for years and years, has been really getting all the developers to develop software using Apple's own system, Xcode, and Apple's own you know, uh, APIs and programming languages like Swift and all of that. And Apple's known about this you know, known for a long time that they need to get it to the point where people can do a much easier transition than before. You know, before you had developers that had to just basically rewrite their software from PowerPC to Intel with a different system, different APIs, all of that. Apple's been building this for a long time, and hopefully for a lot of developers, it'll be a lot easier to actually take the software that they've been deploying all this time and simply recompile it. Uh, as a matter of fact, Apple's been encouraging people to do that all along so they can make a version that's both for Mac and one for iOS, or more specifically, iPad OS. So how how common is that? Because I, I was running through my 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 apps here and just sort of thinking yeah. which ones actually are on both platforms. Well, it's common it, is that there are a lot of apps that are on both platforms. But what's more important is it doesn't have to be common. Like if you went and said, hey, I'm only interested in a Mac app, right? My app uses a keyboard and a screen. It's got to be on a computer. I'm not doing it for an iPad. It's not a, not a touchscreen kind of deal. Right. You're still using those same tools. So if Apple were to switch to ARM, you know, and you've been keeping your app up to date, using all the latest stuff, then it's still going to be an easier transition, even if you hadn't been doing it as an iPad app and still aren't going to be doing it as an iPad app. So easier, easier. Yes. Yes. Easier. Easier. Yes. Well, but that, it, but that was the problem before was that it, for a lot of developers, it wasn't easy, but it, no, no, no. There's so I, I want to draw a very strong distinction between something being easy yeah. and something being easier. Yeah. And I say that because, um, Maybe I'm cynical. Maybe I've been in this industry too long. Maybe I've seen this kind of thing happen too many times already, not just on the Mac. 
Um, taking any installed base of code and just recompile it for a different platform never ever yeah, works. But it's the it, same platform. It it's a it's different still, platform. It's still it's Mac OS. It's a different architecture. Um, it's there is going to be work involved, and the if if, if anything. Um, the nuances of the work involved are actually less predictable because it's the same platform. So you don't know what's going to break. But I guarantee you it is not anywhere near as simple as just recompile it and it'll run. It'll be a matter of recompiling. Well, for trivial apps, of course. You know, hello world. Yeah, that's going to be recompile. But no, it's, it's going to be recompile, see what breaks, fix it, and iterate. And yes, that will absolutely be easier than what has happened in the past, but it will in no way be easy. Right. And I suspect that there will be a lot of pushback um, from a lot of application vendors, which is fine uh, because I, you know, I remember the, the PowerPC to x86 transition was over multiple years and mm-hmm. multiple um, uh, generations of devices. But uh, so I think it's fine that Apple's going to go in this direction. I just don't think it's going to be as easy as some of the um, uh, terminology might lead some people to believe. Well, remember, it's never easy even going, say, from the last version of macOS to, you know, Mojave to Catalina, <laughs> right? True. That it, is true. It, so, so what you're describing, you know, okay, let's try compiling. You know, you go from Swift 5.1 to Swift 5.2 you go through that same process. Oh, let's see if it just works. Nope, it doesn't. There's a couple things. Fix those. Takes a couple days because you have a big, massive graphics app or something like that. And then eventually you get it done. It's going to be the same thing. Hopefully it won't be too much more difficult. I will claim it's an order of magnitude more difficult. I, I, I'm, I don't know. And now, we'll see. Remember, I, mean, I mean, obviously the, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, now, another thing is- Apple did, which was interesting, is you know when they did the PowerPC to, to 86 um, conversion, there were apps that were like, hadn't been updated in 10 years, you know, people's favorite little game right. or whatever it was. And it's like, oh no, you know, this runs in an emulator, but now the emulator has gone and now my favorite game from the old days won't work anymore. Well, Apple already went and drew a line between 32-bit apps and 64-bit apps. Mm-hmm. And with this version of macOS Catalina, 32-bit apps don't work. Right. So that really killed off anything that hadn't been updated in the last five years. Right. You know, so they already can go and look and say, look, if it's older than 2015, if the developer abandoned it before 2015, it's already not working right now with Intel. (laughs) So we only got to worry about 2015 on getting the developers to who who have some, you know, level of updating their apps from uh, from the last five years, getting them to actually recompile to ARM. And there's still the chance that they may do an emulator kind of situation because the thing is some of these, if we read about the capabilities, the ARM processors, they're pretty impressive. And if you suddenly put it in a, like they're on the A13 chip, but if there's a version of the A14 chip that's a Mac version Mm -hmm. that suddenly says, oh, by the way, you know that miserly power requirements we had because you had to run on an iPhone battery? Yeah, for that particular chip, (laughs) it's now gone. Give me all the power. <laughs> you could have like five times the amount of power because you're running off a MacBook battery rather right. than a... And in some of these chips, I mean, first of all, they include GPUs and the graphics performance is, you know, fantastic right. on them. You know, as you could see on some of the, some of the stuff, if you, if, you, if you doubt me, go and look at one of the higher end, more expensive games for the iPad or iPhone mm-hmm. and, or Apple TV and just look at, if you don't want to buy it, Look at the the videos of the sure, play sure, sure, stuff. Sure. It, it it's really impressive. Well, so I, you I, have you have that. Now there's another thing that a lot of some people will complain about, and other people will just shrug off because either you use this or you don't, and that's the ability to emulate Windows on your Mac. And oh, I should also say yeah. limit Linux and other things. Anything running on an Intel processor, you could do that easily using either Boot Camp, which Apple provides, and you reboot right. into Windows or using uh, VMware or Parallels or some other virtualization software. Right. 
Right, which and I what, which I have done. I, I actually yeah, do have Windows me Windows too. 10 sitting here on my. I've my, got an old version of Parallels running that every once in a while, but I, I don't use it as much as I used to because I mostly use them for browser compatibility for websites, and oh, sure, uh, that's cha- that's gotten a lot better recently. So, yes, the, but the the idea is there's there are some people right that use it all the time. And it is interesting reading their comments because, you know, it's like one of those things where the people that use it all the time think that pretty much everybody uses it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, no. 95% of the Mac user base goes and says, what, no. is, what is this again? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but it, it's easy to do when you have the process right there. You could just pass through a large, it's like a large pipeline of stuff in virtualization and go right to the processor at full speed and come right. right back from the processor at full speed. There's no emulation going on. It's really is running Windows on an Intel processor because it's an Intel processor inside. Now, people are complaining, well, yeah, if you're going to do that at all, in ARM, uh, it's not going to, you know, it's going to be some sort of emulation like it used to be in the PowerPC days uh, because you don't have that Intel processor. And then the interesting thing I saw somebody post was, well, Windows does run on ARM. Like the entire Surface line is Windows on ARM. Um, that's not necessarily true. I need no. to double check. I'm pretty sure... So the Surface RT was the Surface was, RT. I read is old. That's it is. Not it's very like old. Current, it's gone. It's it's effectively gone. Win, that's not Windows 10 on Surface. And, this kind of Surface is not. Well, that's why I write. That's the old way of doing it. Depreciated. Now there's Windows 10 that runs on ARM, and the only restriction that I, I read. Maybe some of our listeners know more about this than we do. Um, the only restriction I read is. It is 64-bit, just like Mac OS is. Right. So if you have a 64-bit Windows app, it actually runs on the Surface with an ARM processor. And just like it would run on the Intel processor, 64-bit, it's the 32-bit apps that won't run. Uh, or maybe I got that backwards. Uh, but either way, you can run some Windows software that's actually meant for Intel processors on a Surface. I'm... Um... I'm I'm going to investigate this yeah, some because okay. I'm I'm fairly. I could be wrong, so here's so uh, Surface Pro Seven, yeah. just one of the random models that I picked. Uh, where did it go? It had it here. The tenth generation Intel Core processors inside the Surface Pro Seven is designed yada 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 marketing. Um, so the Pro Seven is at least an Intel processor. Mm-hmm. Non-ARM. Uh, let's see. Now, the, now the thing I'm I'm certain about is that Windows 10 or a version of Windows 10 does run on ARM on some Surface machines, which at the very least should mean that if there if I had a Mac that was running ARM processors, I should be able to still emulate directly um, Windows for my purposes, which mainly are like running Windows browsers and, and things like that to be able to uh, see what things look like over there. Now, if your idea is to run some sort of old Windows game or something like that, um, maybe that doesn't quite work. The other thing is, of course, is that the sheer power of ARM may make emulation uh, po- more possible and much more feasible than it was 20 years ago when... Uh, you know, you had, you know, the Intel processors of that time trying to emulate PowerPC app, you know, the, the PowerPC processor right. for older PowerPC apps. Um, it might not be, it maybe is like, you know, a level of magnitude, to use that term again, uh, difference where, uh, you know, an A14 Apple processor for Mac may be very capable of emulating Right. Yeah, that's the question I would love to see answered myself is to just see how well could an A14 um, truly emulate? How good an emulator could be written? um, Right. And to run native x86 apps. And and I don't think I don't think this is going to be the kind of thing where Apple. So I think Apple at the Worldwide Developers Conference they may actually say this is what we're doing. We're announcing it here. Now that may be it. It may just be an announcement. Nothing. Nothing going on. They may also. Uh, release a way for developers to start testing this. Like, for instance, the iPad Pro <clears throat> might be the perfect machine 
especially since you can do keyboard and mouse and all that with it, uh, to actually have a developer's system for the iPad Pro where you can basically run the iPad Pro as a Mac and then test out your software in preparation for the first ARM-based Mac. Or they may come out with some special system uh, like they did 20 years ago where, you know, here's like a special Mac Mini developer edition that has an ARM processor in it, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think whatever they do, you're going to start, you're going to see a line drawn like in June and every Mac Apple produces after that's going to be ARM and every Mac before was Intel. I don't think they're going to do that because one thing, the Mac Pro, which has Intel Xeon processors in it, right? Um, I don't see them dropping that any time and I don't see them taking the Pro line to ARM. I see them actually supporting both oh. Intel and ARM for a period of at least five years, maybe even more, maybe indefinitely, maybe pro stuff is going to continue to use like things like Xeon processors right. and Mac OS. And when you actually compile something for Mac OS, it actually will include a code in there to run both with a powerful Intel processor and a, uh, you know, an ARM processor at the same time for a long period. I do want to give um, some of our listeners a bit of background on this because we've kind of made a bunch of assumptions uh, that they know what an ARM processor is, or for that matter, they even know what an x86 <laughs> processor is. Um, as it turns out, ARM is um, a two-level acronym. Uh, it stands for uh, Advanced Risk Machine, where RISC is an acronym <laughs> for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. Now, the reason we talk about reduced instruction set is uh, when you take a look at the actual integrated circuit that gets gets created, the, the, the chip, as it were, that is the processor, the more instructions you let the processor process, you, do, you, do, you design the processor to be able to process, the more complicated that circuitry becomes. The simpler you can make it, you can then focus on it being smaller, cheaper, less power hungry, which is one of the reasons they've gone down this path, um, and faster even uh, because you're actually uh, keeping things smaller and closer together, etc. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, and the reason it's all this is also relevant, is in fact the x86. It is anything but a reduced instruction set computer. Um, it is a, a processor that has evolved incrementally uh, since, I want to say, for, perhaps for the last 30 or 40 years. It depends on when you think it really began. Uh, we often think of it as having begun with the 8088 in the IBM PC, but that itself was based on pre-existing processors uh, like the like the 8080, which itself was based on potentially the 8008, which was based on the 4004. You get the idea. Yeah. Um, the instruction sets for all of those computers are very similar, and they are, as best I can put it, cumulative. Uh, they suffer from backwards compatibility-itis. And that means that um, there is a bunch of hardware in, the, in every x86 processor um, that is there simply to make sure that all of these decades of instructions that I'm sure some software is using um, continue to work and continue to work properly. They are certainly in comparison to the uh, ARM chips. They are significantly more complicated, and that's one of the reasons that they are uh, significantly more power hungry. Uh, and probably one of the reasons that they get delayed so much because they're very complicated to uh, to iterate your design over. Yeah, uh, but uh, but yes, they uh, um, it it makes total sense to go to an ARM based or a RISC based ship for uh, for mobile or power you know uh, devices that are running off of battery. Um, and x86's existence is all about compatibility. Um, there's no way you would ever see Windows move away from an x86 platform simply because you end up throwing it all away. Um, uh, you know, so x86 is here for better or for worse um, is here for a long time. Yeah, indeed. Cool. Well, I think we've uh, 
Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what they do. It's always interesting to see what they we'll do. We'll know in uh, about the 22nd, about two weeks from okay. now, we might be in the middle of we'll be doing our show right after a virtual keynote at the virtual uh, Worldwide Developers Conference. Will um, it be at virtual Moscone Hall or what? <laughs> or, yeah. Well, or what? No, they're doing it in the... Uh, um, on I don't, campus now, aren't they? I don't they, think, yeah, they're doing it on campus, but they're not doing this one anywhere. Right, this one right. is completely virtual, uh, which is uh, which actually uh, a lot of people also predict will be the first uh, of uh, all of the, you know, Apple's not the type of company that will say, okay, we'll do this one virtual and um, and then we'll go back to in-person next year. They, right. They'll just use this as, an, as a good excuse to say, we'll go completely virtual, which actually considering that the Worldwide Developers Conference is um, prohibitive to attend because it's an expensive place in the world to try to get to. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a limited number of seats, mm -hmm. very hard to actually get a ticket to it. Um, but Apple's, you know, Apple wants as many developers to attend as possible. They, you know, don't want to limit the number of people that learn about the new stuff and all that. So um, if this works, which I think it will, I don't think we'll ever have a, another uh, in-person Worldwide yeah. Developers Conference. Maybe, maybe they'll go back to having keynotes that you know, local local people can attend, and they'll broadcast uh, out. Um, certainly, I, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't do that. But uh, but I don't think we'd go back to. And I think a lot a lot of conferences uh, may actually be switching to that. I was just going to say what I keep hearing about. You know, this conference went virtual this year for the first yeah. time, and that conference. And afterwards, what I keep hearing is that. Um, <laughs> It is comparing apples and oranges, but um, they've got like record attendance, right? They've, they've never had this many people attend, where attend yeah. is in, in air quotes here, um, their, their conference before. And you're right. It's simply because it's way, way easier to fire up your browser and whatever app you want to watch it on than it is to get on a plane right. and travel across the country or in some cases the planet. I think the ones that are like uh, thinking the ones I've attended, like the Game Developers Conference, which are run more by an organization. And lots of companies participate. I think those will go back to in-person things because they're such an enjoyable event to get together mm -hmm. with all these people, some of whom you get to be friends with, but you only see them this one time a year. Right. And I think, you know, uh, hopefully next year, uh, the pandemic will be over for one reason or another. And there'll be a huge demand to actually have that conferences like that in person. But an Apple developer conference um, is the opposite of that. It is one company with a specific agenda to get information to developers um, and for them to be able to make a decision like, let's just have to be virtual all the time makes more sense because they don't care if you go and have drinks at the, you know, at the bar across the street from the Moscone right. Center afterwards. That's not part of Apple's agenda, but it is part of like the Game Developers Conference agenda because the people that put it together like doing that. <laughs> so anyway. Anyway, we'll see, and we'll talk about this this more. Yeah, we certainly will. Yeah. So, in the uh, random ain't it cool category. Yeah. Uh, so this afternoon, actually no, this morning, uh, I did the whole platelet donation thing again. So I was stuck in a chair for two hours, huh? and uh, as part of what I did, well, I did two things. Uh, I listened to the Smash Smashing Security podcast which I've mentioned here before. Mm -hmm. um, it's an entertaining podcast, and some of the ideas about what we do, I kind of blatantly ripped off from them because it's, it's a fun podcast. They have a good time. Uh, but the other thing I did was I watched a YouTube video of, of all things, an organist, a theater. He's actually a, uh, a classical uh, pipe organist uh, who does, who teaches and, and demonstrates various pipe organs around the world. And in this case, he actually was demonstrating a theater organ, which would be the organ installed in a theater uh, that would be intended to be played alongside silent movies back in the day. And it was fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's Fraser Gartshore. He's actually in Germany. So the, the theater that we hear most think of when we think of um, theater organs is the Wurlitzer. But in fact, he had some other uh, German manufacturer, but it's basically the same thing. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. I just enjoy this kind of stuff. It's eclectic as hell. Um, and I just wanted to throw that out there. So I've got a, a, a link to of the YouTube video where he's demonstrating all the weird stuff that this theater organ can do. And uh, I just had a good time with it. So it, it made my two hours go a little faster and made me leave with a smile. Cool. 
Uh, I've got another TV show that I want to talk about. Uh, um, there's a show called Devs, and it's uh, I'm not sure if it's an FX show that I saw on Hulu or Hulu show that was also aired on FX because <laughs> it just says FX slash Hulu, and I, I watched it on Hulu, I, so I don't I don't know. But uh, it's a um, it's a one season only sci-fi show uh, from uh, the same guy that uh, boy he uh, I forget his name now, but he writes a lot of uh, he's written a lot of books and he uh, um, wrote, did that movie a few years ago, uh, you know, Ex Machina. Oh, uh-huh. um, and uh, anyway, he I guess this is kind of along the same vein. Uh, as that, except obviously couldn't be done as a two-hour movie because it is a uh, eight-episode, uh, you know, uh, basically limited series as they call it. It's a great uh, little series. Sci-fi takes place in the kind of near future. Mm-hmm. It's very computer science-based. Like the people involved are computer programmer type people, and it talks a lot about that stuff. But with one foot there in the computer world. Of, of new technology and the other foot firmly in the world of philosophy, which of course is yes. kind of, the, kind of the idea yep. and uh, has, but it's also a thriller. So there's, it's, you know, it's thriller. There's some chases and things like that that happen in there that have to do with it. I really enjoyed it. I binged watched it literally. Like I was like, let me see what this show is about. They showed me the commercial a few times. It's worth checking out. I watched the first episode and watched as many episodes as I could over the next two nights until I was done. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's funny. Um, so I, I have seen devs. Oh, um, you have? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's probably about a month ago. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's, it's everything you say it is. Um, it's really, really good. It's well done. Um, it stars, uh, what is it, Nick Offerman from, yes. you may remember him from Parks and Recreation, in a completely different role. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, he's kind of the, um, the Steve Jobs of a high-tech company, uh, yeah. in a way. Uh, he's certainly set up as the uh, the enigmatic uh, head of the head of the company, and there's you know there's some backstory and and just a whole lot of a whole lot of really good stuff. Now it is sci-fi. There's a there's a, a good you know hefty technology component, but um, my wife loved it too, and she's definitely good. not you know the kind who's who's going to get um, enticed by the the technology she'll certainly enjoy it but it's not something where uh, it's so inaccessible to the non-techie that you wouldn't enjoy it you will she really enjoyed the story the plot um, the whole thing so it worked out yeah well. uh, so uh, so two other things i want to say about it first of all i found it interesting i was thinking about it afterwards and considering what it's about and the whole atmosphere and and feel of the show mm-hmm. Realize afterwards, and I, this is not really a spoiler because it's, it's a very broad statement. It does not concern artificial intelligence in any way, which makes it different than almost every other thing like it. Yeah, yeah, that's because a good Because usually yep. you throw really smart computers and tech thriller and all this stuff together. Every book I've read that's followed that, every movie, every TV show I've, ever, I've seen in the last five years, everything has some aspect involved AI. There's nothing, this has nothing to do with AI. The other thing is, is I, and I won't say the deal, but at the beginning of the, sh- of the show in the first episode, uh, the um, Nick Offerman's character asked one of the other characters, uh, well, do you know what, before I show you devs, you know, this department, uh, any guesses as to what it is? And uh, <clears throat> I paused the show right there and I said, okay, based on what I know now, I'm going to make a guess myself. And I guessed, and of course, um, you know, that I continued playing. You don't find out in that episode, but you find right. out later. <clears throat> My guess was almost completely right. <laughs> I just have to say that. <laughs> uh, and I'll, 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 ex- I'll expunge, but, but it did, that did not take away at all from the enjoyment right. of the show. And right. I also guessed an important plot twist that was upcoming. And that's still, I, you know, guessing important plot twists, if it's, a, if it's a legitimate guess that you don't have, you know, you're seeing a movie and you actually think of it yourself, you didn't, it's not something you read, I find that not only doesn't take away from the movie, it actually, you enjoy it more. Sure. Because you're sure. like, aha, yep. <laughs> I knew it. Yep. <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you, after we turn off, after we stop recording, I'll tell you what I, what I meant a little more. Okay. I want everybody else to actually check the show out. Because, yeah, you don't want to uh, spoil it. This is one of those where you really do want to watch it end to end and yep. let the, let the story be revealed the way it's revealed 
Um, and right. it comes to a, a very interesting conclusion. I also wanted to mention that, coincidentally, I just mentioned Smashing Security. I was listening to them in their, um, what do they call it, pick of the week. Uh, their, one of their co-hosts actually mentioned devs. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> she did exactly the same thing. She watched the first episode and then suddenly found herself, you know, two days later having binged the whole thing. Yep. So I <laughs> thought that was pretty good. Uh, let's see. I would like people to go read uh, my article, Why a Chromebook and Why I Purchased Two for the Important People in My Life. A couple of weeks ago, I actually may go back a little bit further than that. I mentioned here that I was in the process of getting my wife a new machine. And I ended up getting her a Chromebook. And a friend came to us a couple of weeks ago with another broken machine. And I, you know, analyzed what she was up to. And I said, you know what? Chromebook would be good for you too. They both have them. They both work. They're both happy. Um, anyway, that's the article that documents uh, essentially what I did, uh, the specific machine I got, uh, the thinking behind it. It's askleo.com slash one, two, three, 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 nine. Why a Chromebook? Cool. I've got a new video this last week called Getting Organized by Cleaning Up Your Mac uh, because um, basically a lot of people ask questions and there are a lot of videos online about organization. Uh, you know, computers are great tools, but uh, sometimes, you know, there's nobody tells you like, where do your files go? Like, right. do they go in this documents folder? How about video files? Like, where do I, how do I organize that? Do, is everything just there or do I create subfolders? And to some people, it's obvious, but to other people, it's like, hey, what do other people recommend? So I did a video uh, where I talk about like ways to organize your files and clean things up a bit if you have a mess of using computers for years. Many people do. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's not Mac specific by any stretch. That's good to hear. All righty. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh102. If you've got a comment or a question for us, you know to hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast or leave a comment on that show notes page. Thanks as always for listening and we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.